The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. This is Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. If I am the podcast, it's because man has made me. Ooh, <laughs> cue spooky noise. <laughs> and all that, of course, was just read from a cue card uh, that, that the audience was supposed to read while dramatic organ music played. <laughs> yes. Um, this is a really fun and exciting episode that we have here. And we have a very, very, very special guest that I'm very excited for. V, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, guys, for having me on. It's super a big privilege to be here. Um, I'm VP Morris. I'm an award-winning horror and thriller writer, as well as the creator of the audio drama, The Dead Letters Podcast. Um, so just like a background about horror, I kind of got into it when I was about like 10 or 11, uh, when my mom showed me Psycho for the first time. She put it ah. on, yeah, for all my friends at like a little Halloween party I was having, and I was the only one that was like into it. Uh, other girls were freaked out, and the, some others were like, whatever, and bored, and I was the only one that was like super glued to the screen and like wanted to figure out like the psychology of Norman Bates, and I just was like something just like hit a big chord with me and I was like this I don't know what this is but I want it in my life oh man that movie's <laughs> that movie just rules I've yeah. also had a similar situation when I was about 10 I dressed up as a vampire for Halloween but at the time I was a scaredy cat and <laughs> so I cried every single door trick-or-treating because I was so terrified of all the Halloween decorations and my dad took me home and was kind of upset with me, but we ended up watching Psycho, and it was like, oh, Halloween can be cool. This movie's awesome. <laughs> so I, I resonate with that story. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, um, Psycho saves the day or turns a scaredy cat into a horror fan. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Norman. Yeah. Um, and, and for my favorite horror movie, it has to be The Shining, hands down. Ugh. Are you Can't excited for Dr. Sleep? Yes, I am. And I'm so glad that they're using like the the Kubrick version and they're like building onto it and not just using the novel as the the reference because I just think it's going to be more cinematically amazing. Mm -hmm. And for my scariest, I actually I have a toss up between The Conjuring and Insidious. When I'm really freaked out about a horror movie that I feel like I can't fully like watch on the big screen yet, I just like watch it in the preview mode in YouTube where it's like the really small one in the corner. And both <laughs> of those I had to like watch it like in the small corner of my screen before I had enough courage to like fully blow it up. So those two freak me out the most. What scares you about The Conjuring? We, we've done a few episodes about that franchise and that kind of story. What, what gets you in particular? Um, that one, it's like the general atmosphere is really bleak. Like even when the family moves in, like it just feels kind of ominous and just like there's no like color in it. It just kind of feels depressing as it is even before the weird stuff starts happening. And um, I just think the, the scares are far more like terrifying and unexpected and just 
uh, like Bathsheba vomiting into the mom's mouth, um, like when, uh, I forget, uh, Lorraine is trapped in the basement, just like that stuff is just like a big no from me. <laughs> so, And I'm sure the uh, exorcism scene, bag over the head, tearing oh, in Bathsheba's yeah. face oh, and the blood is probably not any, any better. No, that's, that's so good. So good, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I freaking love that scene. Right. That, it's better than, than, like, her full face being revealed at once. Like, the, the small rip is, like, far more terrifying. So that was a great choice on the, the production staff's... Uh, yeah, they, they really just nailed it. We haven't had an episode about the Insidious movies. I'm curious of what scares you about that. Because I, I love that movie, but the ending is just so not oh, what I wanted yeah. it to be that a lot of the scare factor is lost. Um, I mean, I watched it earlier, like, I forget, it came out, I think, maybe closer to 2010 or 2011, I, I don't remember, but I was, like, easing myself into more horror, like, scarier horror at that time, so I just had, like, less of a tolerance for it, I guess. But on top of that, I feel like the further is just creepy for me, because at least in The Conjuring, it all exists within our world, and we can, like, physically, like, you could just leave the house, and for the most part, it seems like it would stop, but with the furthering, like, the kid, or the further the kid is, is trapped there, and it's, like, this dream place that doesn't really abide by the, like, rules of physics, and I feel like that's far more terrifying than just a haunted house not that the conjuring is just a haunted house but that that part of being like trapped somewhere you can't like logically figure out is really creepy yeah that's that's a great point yeah we might have to have you on when we end up doing insidious movies because yeah like i i have very split feelings about all of them and and the further is is the thing that i i both like i want to love it but don't i don't Mm -hmm. know yeah, I think, I mean, it's not my favorite way that it could possibly have been executed. I just think that it, it's creepy that it's not, it, it kind of reminds me of um, As Above, So Below, where, like, the logic of the, the world doesn't, like, make sense. Like, you can be upside down, but it is right side up type of a thing. Mm-hmm. And V, you mentioned that you're an award-winning podcast host. Tell us about that. Give our um, fans a rundown of what you do. Yeah, so um, about, I think, a year and a half ago, I won an award for my short story called Bloodsuckers. It is a uh, parable about an eating disorder, and um, it's about a model who wakes up with leeches on her body every night, and she has to figure out why. Um, Ew, that's gross. Exactly, and I was not (laughs) expecting to win at all, because it's everyone who read it was like, what? (laughs) And it won, so yay. When there, um, I had a, a few, there was one story that was on uh, Stories of Yours and Your. It's a, a podcast where he features uh, original short stories as well as classics. And he uh, published one of, or produced one of mine called Nature is Cruel, But So Am I, about a, a couple that has like anger problems and it turns supernatural. Um, and most recently, I have the Dead Letters podcast, which is up for a Audioverse award in writing of a new uh, audio play. So hopefully, fingers crossed, I might find out in a few days if I won that. Um, and it's about five women who, over the course of history, have been receiving mysterious letters from a sender who warns of death and destruction if they don't do as the sender says. And if you haven't listened to that one, stop what you're doing after you finish this episode and go listen. I, I love your Dead Letters podcast. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, it's so good. Thank you so much. 
yeah, we'll have to uh, have you shamelessly plug that again at the end, so that way there's no chance anyone misses it, because, yeah, definitely worth your time, everybody. All right, well, I think it's about time that we get into the meat of this episode. Do you both agree? Yes. Certainly. I want to point out that a few episodes back, we made this funny joke that we are not a French literature podcast. Um, And then V and I exchanged some dialogue on Twitter about how she's actually quite the expert in French literature and would love to be on the podcast. And here we are. So I'm eating crow and we are now a French literature podcast. (laughs) Hell yeah. Sorry to hijack it. It's all right. Bring it on. Bring it on. Yeah, well, you know, if you remember, I I was upset about Max hating on on French literature, so... I did not hate on it, I just made mention. I feel like I'm backpedaling. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All I'm going to say is, as an English teacher who just spent uh, the first term of my class teaching a bunch of Italian literature, um, yeah, I am... All ready to get into some French literature. Well, V, tell us what we're going to be talking about. What's what's on the agenda? We're going to be talking about The Phantom of the Opera, 1925, starring the late, great Lon Chaney. Oh, he's so fantastic. Yeah, it's super great. And we're obviously going to talk about how it compares to the novel that it's based on. And yeah, we will bring up the the musical and some other stuff that that may be more familiar touchstones. But we're going to focus in Mm -hmm. on the the ogs all right um so i guess just to kick things off what what do you like about the movie um well for me i i'm a big like fan of old movies so just seeing the way like history has uh, like cinematic history has evolved was really great for me because i just um like kind of feeling transported back into the past and I like that there was actually some elements of slapstick going on um like with the the stage hand that gets like pulled around by the dancers and that does you don't really see that nowadays it's very you know like Chaplin-esque and I just it was kind of refreshing to see kind of like an old way of like doing comedy without any voice acting um happening in the middle of like a horror thing and I just I liked that one thing that really uh, struck me as I was watching it is that I really loved like the spectacle of the film. Mm-hmm. It was they had big sets, big things were happening, the costuming and the makeup, all of it was really just like looked really good. And and so I I really enjoyed the the visual spectacle. And the whole time it actually kind of like made me a little bummed out that they weren't able to have the audio mm-hmm. elements to it because you know it's the opera exactly. and like you know you could tell that if they had the chance they would have gone all in with the uh audio spectacle as well with the singing and the dancing and and all of that you know and the dramatic playing of the organ in the corner like those kinds of things were all there and you know those are the things mm-hmm. that i think we associate with with this the most strongly uh and so it was interesting to experience it without that yeah, I have in one of my notes um, a silent film about music, LOL. And yeah. that was like my, I just, it kind of occurred to me halfway through because I just like, I knew it was silent, obviously, going in. And then I just was like, oh, that would be so nice if we could actually hear how good Christine is supposed to sound and like how foreboding the Phantom's voice is like echoing through the, the chambers. But, um, you know, I think it still conveyed the general message without having to like showcase the voice. Like I felt the the spirit of the novel, so to speak, in it without having to actually hear the music. 
Mm-hmm. And I think nowadays it's it's kind of difficult for people to get into this 1925 edition because mm-hmm. Andrew Lloyd Webber, wow, that was bad. Andrew Lloyd <laughs> Webber, his you know Broadway musical has become so ubiquitous mm-hmm. everywhere you go, and so when you do watch this story that is such a an endearing story in a silent medium it it doesn't sit well with a lot of people i think because they they are expecting that pomp and circumstance you know of mm-hmm. the broadway yeah exactly i mean i kind of like i mean i'm glad that phantom of the opera the broadway musical uh, exists because it is like a fantastic piece of art in its own right but i kind of sometimes get upset when that's all that people see yeah. phantom as so let's they... I'm sorry, not to interrupt, but oh, I would no, love to to talk about, um, like, the book. Mm-hmm. I, I assume you've read The Phantom of the Opera yes. book. Um, why do you love that? Um, I love that because it actually scared me more than, obviously, the musical is, because the Phantom is supposed to be way more of a romantic figure than a horror figure. And there's obviously a lot of sympathy for Eric, which, spoiler, that's his real name, in case people don't know that. You get to know him in the novel as well so it's not like this complete monster but he's far more foreboding and dangerous than what is seen in the the musical so i actually remember being terrified for like several nights after i had finished the novel for the first time because i just felt because he he's supposed to look like a living corpse he's not like halfway deformed the way he appears in other adaptations it's his whole body yeah it's it's not a handsome Gerard Butler with some slight scars on his face. Yeah. Oh boy, we're not going to talk about Gerard yeah. Butler edition. <laughs> no. <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> I mean, I still like the movie because I'm a fan girl and I can't help myself. But um, I feel like his his deformity is just like a bad rash, and that just makes me so mad. Same. He just, he just needs some talcum powder. That's yeah, all just, he needs. I just yeah. No one's gonna get you know banished from society for having like what looks like some bad eczema or maybe a sunburn (laughs) so v why are you a fangirl of the phantom maybe we should Um, have started with that question well i mean i started with the musical because once again like my mom was a big fan of the musical so she just like would play the music on occasion and i just liked the idea of of someone who's like watching over you and can make things happen for you i mean i didn't it took me a longer time to realize like how bad that is because he was hurting people for christine's sake but just the idea because like a lot of people feel really alone in life even if they have family and friends and whatnot and i've definitely felt that myself and i just thought it would be nice if someone who was like watching over me could like be into this like invisible force in my life and make all the good things happen and i kind of your angel of music yes oh love (laughs) (laughs) the power of love of abusive coercive relationships (laughs) all right (laughs) yeah i I definitely see that though you know you you want someone who is like your unseen friend kind Mm -hmm. of thing like that that definitely has a strong appeal and then yeah finding out that that person has become a monster you know and and whether or not that's necessarily their you know the, a lot of that has to do with his circumstances but i think it's yeah really heartbreaking to see how in many ways he's a victim 
but he ultimately decides to go whole hog on the set, you know, murder traps all over the, just the the underground uh, areas of of the opera house. Uh, And by the way, that's one thing that I actually really, really love in the book that isn't really possible in in a lot of the other forms of of the show is just like how elaborate and amazing some of his traps are. Yeah, that it, it goes definitely into more of his genius outside of music because he's also an architect and a magician and he knows a bunch of different, like he's a kind of a, a renaissance man that's been like shamed by society. So I like that he, it's not just a musical genius that's been hidden away. It's just like this person who could have been like so amazing and beneficial to society has like kind of been forced to be away from society and kind of hate it. And I love, though, the, the the sentiment that you both shared about having kind of this unseen guide. You know, we in culture, there are so many people out there who still believe in guardian angels mm-hmm. or even to take it to the religious sense and God. Like there's something humanly comforting about thinking that there's someone who is fighting for you. And I think that that right there is kind of why the Phantom of the Opera has been so endearing and has lasted so long. I mean, it's an incredibly powerful story that never is going to go away. Uh, we've all been Christine before, where we're mm-hmm. struggling and we need that help. And this unseen, magical, strange force comes to, to help us out a bit. Yeah. Regardless if he becomes a murder beast or not, he's still there helping us. <laughs> exactly. It's, um, you know, it's a trade-off, like everything in life. We've got to take the good and the bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, and one thing also I like about the Phantom before you kind of fully learn the depths of his insanity is um, that he sees the potential in Christine where people have just basically let her live on the sidelines like she's just a, a dancer and not even a good one at that they're just like tolerating her um, and she's an orphan at the same time so the idea of like someone who was like no don't just ignore her she has something going on is like a nice sentiment i think everyone kind of wants some like authority figure in some regard to be like no this person's special let them do their talent yeah let people who are good at things do the thing Mm -hmm. exactly that's that's exactly what's in the book i think i'm just now realizing just as we're going through this like i always forget like how late the book was written you know it was 1910 Mm -hmm. so yeah this was only 15 years after the book came out that's crazy yeah, I actually, I did some internet snooping and I found out that the president of Universal Pictures actually met uh, Gaston LaRue in Paris and discussed the book deal there. So it kind of like, he seems like a, such a, an old figure writing, you know, so long ago, but he actually like met with a president of a, of a film company. I mean, it was still silent, but still like it just seems, it's more, more modern relatively speaking than one would think yeah that's that's bananas i mean the the things that happen in phantom are you know set in like 1870 but that's still like kind of later than you expect that sort of story to be set in a lot of ways yeah i mean it's even though it's in france it's still after our civil war so it kind of it's technically a bit more modern and um so v i would uh... I think it would be beneficial for our listeners to kind of understand some major plot differences between the mm-hmm. book 
1925 edition, and then the Andrew Lloyd Webber. Do you mind kind of going over some of the bigger changes yeah, that sure. happened um, between those actually, three Actually, I have medias? one tiny detail before I get into the bigger ones. Um, I noticed in, in the 1925 one that we watched, uh, the one of the characters claims that the opera house was built on top of medieval torture chambers, which A, doesn't come up in any of the other Phantom adaptations and is just straight up not true. So I just thought that was like a funny thing that they just randomly added into this movie that is not anywhere else in the Phantom universe. Um, I guess it makes it creepier, but it's just straight up not fact. <laughs> um, yeah. And I mean, like it was Paris. They could have even, you know, involved the catacombs or mm -hmm. something like that, but no. Yeah, it was like, it's over, medieval tour. I'm like, no, it was, they actually had to build this from scratch. Like, nothing was there before, but okay, mm -hmm. that's fine. Um, but the bigger, bigger plot differences is actually, this actually isn't that big of a deal, but it is to me. Christine is a blonde in the, the book, and she's a brunette everywhere else. Um, <laughs> she was modeled off to, after a famous Swedish soprano who was blonde um, at the, the time uh, that the book is set. And every other adaptation as her as a brunette, I just find that an interesting switch. But in general, um, Madame Giry uh, is changed completely. She's kind of a, um, not to sound too mean, but a silly old fool of a woman in the book who takes care of Box 5, which is the Phantom's reserved seat for all of the shows. And she's, you know, kind of your, your typical, like, uneducated working class woman and is kind of easily manipulated by Eric, but in the pretty much all the other adaptations, um, she is a, at the head of the ballerinas and like a force to be reckoned with. And she also is like Phantom's only friend, so to speak, in the opera house. On top of it, the, the musical that is playing. So in the 1925 and the book, it is Faust, which is very symbolic because Faust is about making a deal with the devil and you can see where that's going. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and that's and the next thing I get to teach in my English class, by the way, and I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. Oh, awesome. Ugh, Faustian bargains. Can I be a guest yes. in your class? And I will teach all of your children how to make a Faustian bargain. Yeah. It's fine. The parents right. will be cool with it. <laughs> it's fine. Anyway, sorry, go on. I just no, no, couldn't, no couldn't contain um... myself with that. I'm like, yes, I get to yeah. teach Dr. Faustus. Yeah, no, it's, that's, I, I like that parable, and I, I wish, or the, that parallel, and I wish that it was in the, um, in the Weber interpretation, but because they didn't want to take another musician's music, he had to write all of his own. So all of the music that's in there is, you know, 100% his. So they, it doesn't open with that. It opens with Think of Me which is not a song that existed before Weber. Um, and let's see, other other differences is obviously, like we touched on, um, his deformity, the book, he is the, the most deformed. He looks like a living skeleton with sunken eyes and yellow skin and almost no lips. And he's very, very thin. And he also smells like death, which is a great... Uh, Great little feature there that no other adaptation mentions because I think they don't want to gross anyone else out too much. And uh, Lon Chaney's version, I think, is great. He, he, you know, as everyone would hopefully know, he did all of his own makeup, so that's all him. Um, but all, the rest of the versions have him either in a much smaller mask that covers both eyes or just a half mask to make him a bit more of a average-looking guy with just a somewhat gross deformity but it's never as bad as the book 
Um, also, the age of Phantom is different. He is f about 52 in the book. I mean, his he doesn't know his birthday because his parents basically disowned him. So uh, they're guessing about 50, and I believe he's about 50 in, in the silent version. But in the Weber, I think they age him down to like about late 30s, early 40s. And in the Gerard Butler movie, he is definitely the most dream boaty of them all. <laughs> um, and, and one other, I guess, difference that kind of creeps me out, and I don't like it, is that in the 04 Gerard Butler version, they age Christine down from 18 to 16. Don't know why that was needed. It makes me a little uncomfortable. But in every other adaptation, as far as I know, um, she's at least 18 years old. Um, if I'm like, there could be one out there that I'm missing, but the major ones that I know of. Yeah, yeah, that's maybe not the best choice. Yeah, yeah I don't know. That's icky. I don't know why. Like, I, I, like I mean, that. 18 is still pretty young, and I just don't get why that happened. But whatever. But um, a lot of people <clears throat> uh, get weirded out by the age difference in the book because 50s and, and a woman who's in her late uh, late teens but in the French upper class at the time that wasn't actually that uncommon so I'm not that uncomfortable with the age gap because that's just sort of how it was back then but aging her down for no reason just made no sense to me yeah that just seems like someone's specific uh thing <laughs> so I want to talk about Lon Chaney a little bit do you, when I was doing some kind of back research on Phantom of the Opera 1925, I noticed, I don't want to say negative feedback, but there seemed to be a lot of people who thought that there was a little too much copying mm. from Nosferatu. What do you feel about that? Is Do you think, I mean, I, I think he was clearly inspired, but I don't really think it's a copycat type of an I mean, issue. I mean, don't, I don't think that it's, um, I haven't seen it in its entirety but as f i mean also at the time there's not going to be too much visually that they can do differently than their you know predecessors but i don't i think that lon does his own thing and and makes the story his own with his acting and his makeup i um it never occurred to me that those two would be that much similar other than the fact that they exist at the same time in history yeah, I'm guessing that that kind of more boils down to people didn't have any other points of reference, and so they're like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. it's like Nosferatu, that kind of thing. So yeah. No, totally, and I, I agree with that. And it looks like Lon Chaney was actually one of the directors of the film, too. Uncredited, but that's kind of cool, too. Dude did a lot of uh, stuff for horror mm -hmm. back then. Yeah, there's this really cool uh, old photo of him. If it, I can find it, I'll put it on Twitter of him holding his like toolbox of makeup, and it's basically the same toolbox he's had for pretty much his entire career. And so, like all of these classic, you know, old school horror um, faces essentially came from this one relatively small size toolbox. When like today, we need a huge visual effects team on it, but he just was just a man with a toolbox, and that's pretty cool yeah i mean he was quasimodo he was mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he, he was just he was the guy until karloff became the guy um on the french literature topic do you guys happen to notice that there is such a huge like deformed guy with a heart of gold trope in french literature because, oh yeah yeah because that's just everywhere with you know as early as beauty and the beast and of course hunchback of notre dame i just noticed that they 
they all seem to like um, a lot of the, the classic writers seem to really like that trope and I'm I'm trash for that trope so I'm on board with it but um, I I just find it interesting <laughs> that that so many French writers sort of continue writing in that same vein yeah I mean to me it's probably just you know a, a tried and true you know sort of cultural icon mm-hmm. in, uh, in terms of, of what sort of uh, themes they're playing with there you know, basically beauty in spite of their ugliness, that kind of thing. And so, um, I think also it's a sense of a hero, you know, you have this kind of deformed or ugly figure who can be redeemed through the power of love or whatever. Um, I think that's a, a timeless story that we all need to hear at yeah. some point. I mean, that's also good because of, um, you know, people still do judge books by their cover you know people are still very appearance based even i think we've gotten better obviously as a society but we're still not you know the best because we're human and we all make mistakes and have you know negative impulses so i think these stories are pretty much timeless because it teaches us to like you know try to not instantly be repulsed by someone just because they might look different or they you know have a medical condition try to be understanding type of a thing and i just think that that's a great it's always it always makes me get the feels so yeah long-term resonance on that Mm -hmm. exactly um also i sorry to backtrack but i forgot two major differences um and the fandom community the phantom fandom that's with a ph um would kill me if i don't uh mention it one of the major differences between the book and the silent film with the Weber adaptation is that Raoul has a brother, and Raoul's older brother is like a man about town, and he is trying to get Raoul to be a bit of a womanizer the way he is, and he's completely shocked that he wants to marry a lowly dancer like Christine. Exactly, because well, how that, dare he? he basically treats chorus girls <laughs> like the flavor of the week and dumps them, so he's the worst. Um, but that doesn't exist in the Weber adaptation, because I just don't think he had time to add in another character uh, like that. And there is the infamous Persian, which is a subject to much debate um, in the people who love Phantom Community, uh, that... Um, He was called Ledoux in this movie. Uh, He kind of was the stand-in for the Persian, which he is a um, a police chief from from Turkey, which was like the last known residence of Eric, and he has been tracking Eric down this whole time because he, you know, Eric's not a good dude, and he needs to be kind of brought to justice for some of the stuff he's done. But he also likes Eric and doesn't want to hurt him. It's a very complicated relationship um and after the silent adaptation um he kind of disappears i I haven't seen there's one version in the 1960s that i haven't seen so i can't tell you if it exists there but there's no uh no persian or police detective of any kind and that's one of the the bigger things that a lot of people who love the book complain about because the eric persian dynamic which he's never given a name um is a a big part of that because it shows you it gives Eric a human element because a lot of his history is relayed through this character and it also um, gives it a mystery element because it the book opens kind of like your classic Agatha Christie style um, book with 
with more of a who who could possibly be the phantom and is he even real and what's going on type of a situation and basically from the opening of the the weber version you know phantom's real there's no question there's no investigation it's just how long is it going to take for christine to realize what's going on oh that's interesting i kind of almost mm -hmm. like that better kind of a mysterious ghost story yeah it, it has more of a like a, a whodunit feel like for a while they think that it's the rat catcher because he's the one that for the most part like goes to the deeper parts of the opera house because he has to for his job but that like it's it turns out obviously it's not him um so i just i liked that at the beginning you kind of are wondering and there's people who i kind of hate how dismissive the male characters are of the we women characters who are saying that they see phantom and they're just like huh no like the opening with the the managers uh in this the silent movie the old managers are like hey the you should probably be aware that there's a, a phantom here and they're just like oh like we're not chorus girls we're rational i'm just like okay thanks yeah thanks 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 for saying women can't even see things properly based on them having wombs basically that that hysteria man <laughs> Makes you think phantoms are around. It's crazy. Raul is pretty dismissive of Christine in pretty much every adaptation. Every time she's just like, there's a man teaching me to sing. And he's just like, oh, delusions. How cute. Um, it's just kind of annoying. And they even have like men, like the, the male stagehands say they've seen him. I mean, Bouquet gets killed for it and they kind of ignore it. So it's like working class men and women don't know what they see. And I'm like, ah. That's not nice. Especially when it's literally murdering them. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to, to look at it because, you know, I feel like, you know, you're supposed to look at Raul as, as you know, a, a strong, like, hero character. But kind of as time has gone on, the more I've been like, he's kind of the worst, too, just yeah. for different reasons. Yeah, and I want to I wanna talk about that. You know, the Phantom is clearly supposed to be the antagonist of the story mm -hmm. uh, but v being such a fangirl um what is your take is phantom as truly bad as we're supposed mm -hmm. to believe and i know the whole murder thing is an <laughs> issue but putting that aside i don't know i think we need to give him some credit and it's kind of a nurture nature yeah, type um, of thing I, here i hate raul just straight up never been a fan of any adaptation of him especially <laughs> the 04 version where he has that wig on and he has like a woman's haircut from the 70s it's horrible um it's so i just i hate all <laughs> iterations of raul there's some that i i hate less like a lot of the broadway performers because they're just such you know well-trained actors and and you know singers that i I find that more enjoyable just because they are such top-of-the-line performers. But I I feel like he has too much a insta-love because he knew her once and was like, oh, that girl I met that one time. Gonna marry her. And it just seems <laughs> just as pushy as Phantom because he's, he's pushing his own desires for marriage onto her. And I feel like they're both doing the same thing. Like, they don't know each other that well either you know set of of relationships in this love triangle and it would just be i feel like both of them are just not well thought out situations because it's just you know they want to run away i think after like a week together and on top of that um he seems to have far less interest in her singing career and the phantom at least sees her as not just a wife and potential mother he sees her as a talented woman who can bring music to life and i i like that part too yeah like 
unfortunately, Raul's approach is more socially acceptable uh, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's like they both basically just like it's a given that that she's mine, which kind of (laughs) sucks. Yeah. And I almost wonder if if Phantom hadn't existed or had been as um, instantly like full of rage and and murder at the prospect of there being another suitor for Christine maybe she wouldn't have even liked Raul. She might have just been like, oh, this guy, okay, I mean, I guess maybe I'll see him for dinner, but I don't know if I'll marry him. But because she was scared for her life and he could take her away from that, I could see how she would want to sort of cling to him in her hour of need. It's 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 really an interesting dynamic. And, and yeah, it's really interesting to look at how, like, at the end of the day, like, not none of this is great. And I think, yeah, a lot of times people miss out on how broken any given relationship would be if it were a real person because kind of abusive and manipulative or very assumptive at the very least Mm -hmm. uh, no matter how you look at the relationships in in the in that story yeah they're none none of them are, are particularly spectacular but i mean at the end of the day i feel like I don't know, it's hard to pick who is the worst of that situation. They're all, honestly, I think, like, the managers are kind of the worst because they're just, they're in it for, like, easy money and they don't realize that there's no easy money in show business. Like, I mean, I guess that show business is still kind of new, but that just, like, is laughable from my 2019 perspective that there's, like, oh, being a manager of an opera house is easy. "Mm." And they just are clearly in it for the money and kind of don't take anybody seriously at all. One could say there's no business in show business. (laughs) I would sing it, but I know it's copyrighted, so I'm not. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just going to save our audience the pain of hearing me sing it. Yeah, let's let's keep the ear bleeding to a minimum. (laughs) I am no angel of music, as we all are aware. Um, there is a, a fun fan theory that I see a lot on um, the interweb of Phantom People is that uh, Meg is secretly in love with Christine and that they have an, a lot of people write alternative endings where they run away together. And ooh. I actually like that. I think it's cute. Plot yeah. twist. I love Meg. Exactly. Underrated. There's another theory that Meg is Phantom's daughter. And I like that one too. Um, who's the mother? Oh, Madame Jerry. Okay, I was going to say, that's mm-hmm. the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. Because she was, I mean, if, if, especially if you use the 04 movie, um, she was the one who rescued him. So it, she was like the only point of contact and they were teenagers and teenagers have a, you know, a hard time Feelings. keeping things to themselves. So I could just see that maybe <laughs> uh, things got heated between the two of them and Meg was the result and she like married a guy to cover it up, but... That's just my own weird delusional thoughts on that. <laughs> Scandalo. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's pretty reasonable to to look at it through that lens. Oh. I feel like I need to spread that theory like it's hard truth and just see what people how they react. I think that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, it's true. It's truth. I also have a fan theory that um, oh, why can't I? I never remember her name, but. Um, Sarah Jessica Parker in Hocus Pocus, whose character name I always forget because I can't do that in my brain for some reason. My theory is that she never, like, you know, goes back to the past or whatever happens to her at the end of the movie. She moves to New York City and becomes Carrie Bradshaw, a sex columnist, because she's so obsessed with boys. And the timeline would match up because it's 93. 
<laughs> this is why we're friends. <laughs> this so, is fantastic. In my mind, that happened. She's secretly a witch who's obsessed with boys. Nathaniel hates Hocus Pocus, so we better change topics oh, before he I starts to rage. That's fine. I know that I'm in a minority there and that everyone else is the crazy one. Yeah. Um, so one thing I'm curious about, uh, relative to like other adaptations of Phantom, have you checked out other things, You know, like Phantom of the Paradise, for example? Uh, and if so, what did you think? You know, I actually haven't seen Phantom of the Paradise. I know a lot of people in the horror community love it, and it's there's kind of like this cool, unique bridge between horror fans and Phantom slash musical fans tend to really like that musical. So I see it a lot, like on all the accounts that are Phantom based that I follow on social media. A lot of them will like will reblog scenes from it. So I've seen like enough snippets. And um, Lindsay Ellis, who is that uh, like a cultural commentator, she has a, a YouTube channel and actually like a book coming out. She did this really cool uh, three-part breakdown of all the iterations of Phantom. Um, I'll also post that on Twitter if anyone is interested in watching those. Um, And she does mention that. So it's just really, her videos are really cool comparisons. But um, I like my my tried and true LaRue and Weber. So if you were to talk to someone who has never heard of Phantom of the Opera, where, where would you start them off at? Would you begin with Andrew Lloyd Webber? for kind of the cultural impact it has or would you start something with the 1925 or 1940 edition or um, the original book or oh yeah the book itself i mean it would have to depend on the person because some people hate musicals so i wouldn't recommend that to them if they're the type that just like you know cringes at the thought of broadway well i hate them yeah so exactly which I'm like, i love broadway it's amazing if you guys mm, preach so, so i guess preach. to be fair if you were having that conversation you'd just be like well i guess I'm not going to recommend this yeah, thing to you exactly. because you're the worst. Just be like, I recommend that you leave now. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, there we go. That's... So yeah, I would, depending on who the person is, so if they don't really like musicals, I would recommend the book to start off with, especially if they they might be more like bookish or literature minded. Um, and um, if they do happen to like musicals and just have been, you know, unaware of the longest running Broadway show, uh, I would definitely... <laughs> recommend that they check out the musical um i also i mean i do kind of recommend the 04 movie just go into it with like a super grain of salt like don't don't expect it to be a masterpiece and ignore the hairdo that's happening on raul i love super grain of salt yeah. just take a giant piece of all, rock salt, all of the salt. <laughs> one of those himalayan salt lamps. salt lamps you take that with you <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's my new favorite thing yeah that's it that, all yeah some some himalayan rock salt like have a like a salt rimmed margarita amount of salt while you watch it i mean if you love the musical you'll pretty much love the movie for the most part because it has all the songs in it and it's you know kind of it's pretty much the stage version um on the big screen which doesn't always translate well but i think parts of it do the lighting is like weirdly overshot and super bright and it hurts your eyes so be prepared for that one but if you yeah like if you don't take it too seriously and you don't want to like go into it being super nitpicky um yeah i think that one's enjoyable what would some advice be that you would give to someone who maybe doesn't have a ton of experience with silent films i know they can be kind of challenging for a few people um, put your phone away because you got to read. <laughs> Good advice. And I mean, I actually was 
was pleasantly, or every time I revisit a silent film, I am surprised at how easy it does capture my attention because we're so used to audio and I kind of, you know, the first few minutes I'm just like, oh, I wish this had sound. And then I get caught up in the story and I, I don't even notice it. And because you can't really look away or you'll miss something, I like, I find myself way more um, invested than I thought I would be. So like you put the phone away, you know, kind of make it more of a movie theater environment, especially if it's like your first time in and you don't know if you're gonna like silent um and they're usually relatively short so it's not too much to like you know take out of your your day to do yeah i would say also see if you can find like a uh, an especially good print of it because mm -hmm. i know for me more than anything uh with the silence for me it was just that the visuals were sometimes just hard to make out what was going on on the screen so you know if you can find a, a nice blu-ray edition that would be the way to go yeah yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, some of them haven't survived um, as well as, as other silent films have. I was just talking with my boss that was a uh, was Charlie Chaplin for Halloween, and we were talking about uh, modern times and city lights. So those are also, if you don't want to watch anything that's like horror or that is phantom, those two are great movies from the same time period-ish. So And they're hilarious. Yeah, and they're fun and sweet. All right. Um, I think that's about everything I have written down, at least, as far as my notes go. Nathaniel, did you have anything else? Um, nothing else is really coming to mind. V, how about you? Um, I think I'm good. I have one line that I don't have any context for that I think is hilarious, and I'm just going to put that out there. I just wrote goth AF, and I don't know what that was, <laughs> what scene that was supposed to be, but I guess the, the whole thing movie. is goth, but <laughs> I just, I think there was some line, it, it, I know it was in the, when Christine is down with him um, around the time his mask gets ripped off, but I just feel like there was some, something around there, the whole thing is goth, but I just, I don't know what, that was my little random thought which was like this is goth af man and without context it's kind of funny um but yeah that's all that's all that i've got i had one final question mm -hmm. though for you which is the most important question of them all what are your th three favorite broadway musicals now that i know you love them so oh, much oh that's so that's so hard um so phantoms number one because you can't go wrong with it. I'm sorry. It is? Yeah, what? I know. What? <laughs> shocked. No shocked. Um, even though everyone in this musical makes such bad choices, Rent. Um, oh, it's so good, though. Yeah, it's so good. But like when I was first heard about it when I was a teenager, I just was like, yeah, fight the power. And then I just like watch it again. I'm like, no, don't do heroin. What? No, stop. Um, <laughs> also, just... <laughs> Just pay your rent, yeah, just people. Pay your rent. It's, it's the village in the 80s. It can't be that expensive, man. And especially don't do heroin if, with people who have yeah. AIDS. No, what what are you doing? Oh, man. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah. And for my, my third, it's really because I like one song from it the most. Um, I love Spring Awakening. And oh, it's so good. The song Touch Me is like one of my favorite mm. Broadway songs of all time. So that that's part oh. of the reason why it's so, so high on my list, even though I find the story super sad. Um, um, yeah, it's tragic, but it's a fantastic piece of art. So those are all, those are my favorite, but honestly, like, I want to see all of them, um, that Moulin Rouge is now on Broadway, and I am dying it's to okay. see it. It's okay. It's all right. It's, all right. it's not the greatest. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen it. I just listen to the music. I don't want it to ruin the movie, but at the same time, I want to see it live. I don't know. See how it feels. We are now a musical podcast yeah. as well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Tell my wife this, who was a theater major, and she'll be like, what's up? Why wasn't I in this pod? Or, yeah, this episode. 
We'll show, it's true. We'll have to have her on to review Moulin Rouge, obviously. Because that's yeah, what yeah. you guys are doing now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we are at that level. Hey. She already knows about it, by the way, Nathaniel. Okay. <laughs> um, Beetlejuice is on Broadway, so they're... Oh, little, it's so good! Yeah, there's a little uh, crossover there. Um, my four-year-old daughter has turned down listening to Frozen instead to listen to Beetlejuice. Yes. And it's the proudest I've ever been. That's awesome. No, you, you parented so hard there. You win. <laughs> Dad of the year. Woohoo! Yeah, and, and my three-year-old is obsessed with the Addams Family right now, especially yes. the Addams Family musical. Yes, that all wins. Awesome dad awards to both of you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, do what we can. <laughs> all right. Well, V, thank you again for so... Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for having me. Um, it's been so much fun. Do you want to give us one more shout out for where people can find you and yeah. all that? Yeah. Um, so you can find my show, The Dead Letters Podcast, on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play Podcasts. Um, it's also on Twitter at Dead Letters Pod, as well as Facebook under the same handle. Awesome. Awesome. And and I believe I saw that you had a, have a, a website for you as a writer as well as that. Yeah. Um, if you want to just know more about me and what's going on, I'm in the process of trying to get a literary agent, so hopefully one day I might have some good news about the novels that I've written. Um, so that's vpmorris.com. Also, my, my handles, if you want to just say hi on my personal social media, um, it's twritepeat, and that's T-A-W-R-I-T-E, repeat, on Twitter and Instagram. All right. Well, I guess that only leaves one thing. Stay spooky. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.